Well, good morning. Welcome. If you're new or visiting, my name is Levi. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm glad that you're here with us. I don't know if you were here two weeks ago or not, but I was not here either. Um, and I'm only just a little disappointed about that. My wife and I had the opportunity to go to Florida without our four children for six whole days. It was awesome, but I did miss being here with you all. This is one of the highlights of my week, and I, I missed it two times over because one of my favorite people, uh, Nate Hamblin, he's a mentor and a friend of mine whom I love dearly. Uh, he was here, and you guys got to listen to him. He's a phenomenal Bible teacher. Uh, I've learned a lot from him over the years. Nate always used to joke, uh, there's a passage in Luke that says, a student is not above his teacher, but when fully trained, will be like him. And there's a lot of things that I do and say and uh, think over the years. I'll make a comment and uh, Nate will make that joke. A student is not above his teacher, but when fully trained, will be like him. Uh, There are, Nate's a good guy to be like. I'll say that. So hopefully you were blessed by his message If you weren't here, maybe you didn't get to listen to it. I actually did listen to it. I did the old podcast thing. I had to take that in via the podcast. And I was incredibly struck by a phrase that he mentioned in his talk. He didn't elaborate on it a whole lot, but man, it's just been hanging with me for the last two weeks. He said this about rest. He said, rest is not an escape. Rest is not an escape. Meaning that Rest, at least the soul level rest that Jesus offers to us, is not about disengaging from our lives. Rather, the rest of Jesus is about learning to be present with Jesus in every moment of our lives. Now, before we've done this series and before I started to wade into this idea of rest and hear some teaching on it, I hadn't thought that deeply about what rest is, but having heard some teaching on it and spent some time studying about it via scripture, I've realized that I never would have said it this way, but over the years, as I look back on my behavior, I could tell you that I believed rest was about escaping. Rest was about escaping or pulling out of the responsibilities of my life. I treated rest like an opportunity to escape from the overwhelming realities of my life in the present. The stress that I feel from parenting four children and working full time. And as I was thinking about this, I thought that I might not be alone in this thought process. Perhaps you can relate to treating rest like an escape. I'm not really proud to admit this to y'all, and I've got some stuff, some personal stuff I'm going to share through this message, because what we're going to do is try and engage with Scripture. I believe that's one of the primary practices. There's a lot that we could talk about. We could talk about fasting. We could talk about silence and solitude. We could talk about the spiritual discipline or practice of community, committing to do life together and make friends with the people that you worship with, not just sit next to one another and then go about your merry way, but actually to connect. There's a lot of things that we could talk about, spiritual practices that we could talk about that would help you grow in your relationship with Jesus and provide the rest and joy that you're looking to. But none are more pivotal or more vital than reading your Bible and praying. And so we're going to spend the message kind of unpacking a psalm together on how to engage scripture for yourself. But we're not going to talk about that for, for a little bit. Um, I want to share something personal with you about how I used to treat rest like an escape. Again, I'm not proud of this, but especially in the winter, I have my day off on Fridays. I watch all of our kids, unless they're in school. 
And there was a season of my life where I would consume a ridiculous amount of television on those days. And I used television as an escape from my children to just unplug, turn off, escape from the responsibilities of being a parent, turn off my brain to the responsibilities of work. I would just consume countless hours of television. Or I would swipe through my phone and take in videos or read articles about the latest phone that's coming out on some tech blog or the news about the Green Bay Packers and sports stuff, all as, a, as an attempt to get out of my present reality, to turn off, to unplug, to escape. Sure, I was there, and I would respond to my kids some and do this or whatever, but again, I'm, I'm not proud of this. It's not a, it's not a good thing, uh, but the Lord is working with me on it, and I was realizing that I've, I've been present in my family, but rarely have I been fully present. And this is the whole reason why I wanted to do this series. I wanted to do this series because I find that I am constantly looking for reasons to escape from my fez- present, to find rest, to find relief, to find comfort, peace, and security. And more often than not, I'm also realizing that a lot of the things I escape to wind up actually making me more exhausted than rested. And I think the problem stems with how I was viewing rest. And again, maybe you can relate to this. I think we're, we're sold a bag of goods when it comes to this. Our culture, marketing everywhere, tells us that escape is rest, right? We're told life is hard, and no one has to be convinced of that because a lot of life is hard, right? So we're told life is hard by the marketing guys, and then comes the sales pitch. Life is hard. You need an escape. Buy this hot tub and turn your backyard into a place to escape too, right? Ah, spa. Just put your kids down and go out there, and you can soak in the the bubbles. It'd be beautiful. Car commercials, right? I've talked about Matthew McConaughey. He's just got a velvety smooth voice and he tells you that, man, if your life is just a train wreck and it's overwhelming, you need to escape to the sanctuary of Lincoln, right? They got cars. They got cars in there. Their, their seats have massagers in them. I can tell you what, I would escape to that if I had a car that had a massager in it, right? Babe, I got to go get the groceries. We, let, we forgot the milk. I'll be right back, right? <laughs> this is what we're told. This is what we're told by our culture constantly. You're exhausted, you're overwhelmed, you need an escape. Pull out your phone, come check out these videos on TikTok. How many of you ever lost an hour or two to going through one of the shorts on YouTube or videos? Yeah, no one's raising your hand. You're out there. I know who you are, right? I'm one of them, right? We go on YouTube, we go on TikTok, we go to uh, Instagram, escape from your hard life. Come be entertained by these people whose lives are so much more beautiful and so much more filled with rest and so much better than yours. You can live vicariously through them. Come escape. This is how we think about rest. When we're overwhelmed with the present realities and responsibilities of our lives, we think if we could just escape to some thing. You name your thing. It might not be TV. Maybe it's, maybe it's a substance. Maybe it's sex. Maybe it's, um, I don't know what. It could be any number of things. Any number of things. What is it? When we're overwhelmed by our responsibilities, we think if we could just escape to something, then we will find relief. Then we will find rest. And folks, this is not the rest that Jesus has for us. Here's the rest that Jesus has for us. See, we were not made to find rest in escaping to something. You and I were created to find rest by engaging with someone. 
with the person of Jesus Christ. If you remember a couple weeks ago, we talked about Matthew 11. And Jesus is extending us a new way to do life. And rather than offering us an escape or a mechanism to disengage from our present, he gives us a yoke, a yoke, a light and easy yoke, a tool for work and engagement with him in his present. You see, if we're going to receive Jesus as our rest, I invite you to join me in reorienting our perspective on what rest truly is. Friends, rest is not an escape. It's not an escape. There is no refuge, no replenishment, no restoration, no rest to be found in escaping from your present. You can escape all you want, but when you come back, your problems are still going to be there. And our Lord and God doesn't promise to meet us in the past because we're not there. That is dead and gone. He doesn't promise to meet us in the future because we're not there yet either. The only place that the God of heaven promises to meet you is in your present moment, now. Now. And the rest your soul craves is found only in God's presence, in your present. When we learn to engage with our creator in the present through prayer and through meditating on our Bibles, on his word. Psalm 16 teaches us this. Again, we're going to read through all of this psalm in its entirety, but I want to start at the end in verse 11. Read it with me. We'll be in the NLT here. Verse 11 of Psalm 16, he says, You will show me the way of life, granting me the joy of your presence and the pleasures of living with you forever. It's good. The ESV says it a little differently. He says in verse 11 of the ESV, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I suggest to you that this psalm, and specifically this verse, gives us the secret to discovering the soul-restoring rest that we all crave. First, we're told that rest is found in allowing God to show us what it means to live. His path is the path to life. Not your path, the dreams and visions that you have, not necessarily unless they're shaped by God. That's not the path to life. Not what the media says, marketing says, not our culture. That's not the path of life. The only path to life is what God says. His ways are the ways that lead to the good life. And that life, living the good life as God defines it, entails that we learn to live with God in the presence. We're told that in God's presence, there is fullness of joy. I love that in the ESV, fullness of joy. It's not a little bit of joy. It's the fullness of joy, the overflowing of joy, the never-ending joy, the always and forever joy of Jesus. It's a joy that cannot be diminished, a joy that cannot be stolen. In God's presence, we find the fullness of joy. In God's presence, or to say it another way, as you and I learn to live with God in the present realities of our lives, we will find pleasures forevermore. Doing life with God is where pleasure and joy and rest is found. If verse 11 of Psalm 16 is not a picture of rest, I'm not really sure what is. Here we discover that in our weakness and in the stress that we feel, the only healing salve that we can find for those things is the joy of our Savior Jesus. In Nehemiah, we're told that the joy of the Lord 
is our strength. The joy of the Lord is our strength to face down the present realities of our lives. Here's what this means for us, folks. It means whatever you think you need, whatever escape you have in your mind that, man, if I could just get to this, whatever you think you need, you need the presence of Jesus more. If you're single in here this morning, you don't necessarily need a spouse to find the rest and joy you're looking for. If you're married in here this morning, you don't need a new or better spouse to find the joy of Jesus. You don't need activities, more activities to fill up your schedule with. You don't need to busy your mind with a bunch of other things to do. You don't need more vacation. You don't need more me time. You don't need more family time. You don't need more money. You don't need to do more for God so that he might recognize you. You don't need to follow someone else on social media. You don't need to pick up a self-help book. No. If God is present in and around us, we will know and experience the full of joy and pleasures forevermore. Whatever, what we need, church, is more of God's presence. We need more of God's presence. You don't need to learn how to escape better. What we need to learn is how to engage with God more and live on his path that leads to life. You might be wondering, well, how do I do that? How do I do that? If you were here a couple weeks ago, we talked about silence and solitude a little bit, creating space to get alone, some quiet time with God. If you were here, you might have thought, man, that sounds nice. I need to do that. I need to carve some more time to intentionally get alone and get quiet with the Lord. I want to do that. You may have left being inspired by that calling into the quiet place, but you also may have been left with the question, what do I do when I get there? What do I do when I get there? You just sit and listen and twiddle your thumbs. This message this morning, I'm going to give you some very practical ways for what to do when you get alone with God in your quiet place. It's not complicated. Read your Bible and pray. But we're going to use Psalm 16 to kind of unpack what that looks like. Again, we could talk about a lot of other spiritual practices. There's a lot of great ones, fasting, all of that stuff. These are the two most vital for your life, experiencing joy in Jesus. Read your Bible and pray. If Jesus is a person to know, then it seems to make sense that spending time with him, hearing from his word, and talking with him would be the most important things that we would do, right? That's what relationships consist of. So that's what we're going to use Psalm 16 to hopefully equip you with the tools when you get quiet and alone with the Lord. How do you read the Bible for yourself? How do you unpack it? So look with me at verse 1 of Psalm 16. We're going to do something that I love to do. This is how I engage God through Scripture. I ask questions of the text. What did it say? And I ask questions of myself. Because of what it says, do I need to do, think, behave differently? So that's what we're going to do. We're going to ask questions of the text. We'll emphasize a few different words. That's another really great practice, right? We shouldn't read our Bibles like we read a novel. We should take a small chunk of it and then just chew on it. And we do that by grabbing one word that sticks out to us, defining it, seeing if there's any promises to claim. We're going we're gonna to walk through a couple of different ways that we can engage Scripture, verse by verse through Psalm 16, starting with verse 1. The verse, first, first verse of Psalm 16 says this, Keep me safe. Keep me safe, O God, for I've come to you for refuge. So I was reading this alone, studying for this. The first thing that stuck out to me is the word refuge. It's a unique word. It's not a word we use a whole lot. So 
did the old Google define colon refuge. What does it mean? What does that word mean? Emphasize that word. Meditate on it. Give some definition to it. What is a refuge? We have a clue in the text. We have a clue in the text. It says, keep me safe, O God. How? By becoming my refuge. So we can link those two words together, safety and refuge. A refuge must be a place of safety and security. What else is it? Well, when I personally think about being in a refuge, I think of an oasis, a place where I can rest, where I can unwind, where I can feel all the stress kind of exit my body. Why? Because when I'm in a refuge, someone else is worrying about my care and provision. That's not me. Someone else is providing security for me. That's not me. I can rest in a refuge. A refuge is a place of relief and rest. And what's more, here we see the psalmist coming to God for those things. I hope you realize how, how helpful it can be to emphasize different words. Rather than just reading it and glossing over it, you can spend some time mulling over it in your head, and it will help you engage with the scripture and with God, going down different rabbit, trolls, rabbit, rabbit trails, all of that stuff. So once I defined the word refuge, it made me ask a question. Asking questions of the text, asking questions of myself. Understanding that a refuge is a place of safety and security. The question that popped up in my heart was, God, where do I run to for, for safety and security other than you? Show me the things that I run to for safety and security that are not you. And then, as God reveals stuff by his spirit in that conversation, the back and forth, you give, hopefully he'll reveal something, and then you'll have an opportunity, probably, to confess and repent. Confession and repentance is a way that we practice faith. The way into faith is the way on in faith. You don't stop repenting when you become a Christian. You put it into practice daily, regularly. And so as I prayed, and I said, Lord, where are places of, of refuge, safety, and security that I run to that are not you? And I'm not putting this as a command on anyone. This is a personal conversation I had with God, so don't hear me say, you should cut TV from your life. You should do what I do. This is what God worked in me through a conversation I had meditating on his word. I was praying about it, and just in my spirit, I just felt like, you know, Levi, you spend way too much time watching TV. You're addicted to it. You don't, you don't intentionally consume television. You always have it on, and you use it as a way to escape from your life, to unplug. I'm not okay with that. After reading this, I wasn't okay with it either. And so I confessed. Confessing is just acknowledging where, when, and how you fall short of God's good design. It's just agreeing with God. What you say is this, what I'm doing is this, and this ain't right. I am agreeing with you. This is a problem. That's confession. That's helpful, but it's not enough. You can't just stop with confession. God wants to change us. That's where repentance comes in. So after you acknowledge there's a problem, what I'm doing doesn't line up with God's word, I need to change. That's where my repentance came in. I realized, Lord, I run the TV as an escape. I use TV and television as an opportunity for safety and security that you should be providing me. Help me change. And through that conversation, I was journaling, and I was writing, it's like, you know, Lord, I don't feel like cutting television completely out of my life is realistic. I just don't think it is. Sometimes we put a show on for our kids and it's a very helpful thing, but not always, right? There's, there's balance. So it's like not realistic to cut it completely out. So Lord, what would you have me do? And I kind of prayed through two different things. One thing was, you know, Levi, a lot of the shows you watch, 
do not square with my good design. They're garbage. You are not putting Philippians into practice. Think on these things. Think on the things above when you watch these things. They're junk. So cut that out. It's like, I can do that. So I made a, made a commitment. If there's a television show that I'm watching that is blatantly evil, glorifying wickedness and sin in really graphic and gratuitous ways, then I'm cutting it out. It's not going to be in there, right? That cuts out a lot of what we can watch. Obviously, if you cut everything that was completely unchristian out, you wouldn't watch any television. So there can be some shows that maybe have a little language in it that I don't want my kids to hear, but a good message, they can be edifying, put forward a decent worldview. So that's kind of how I was thinking through this. I'm going to cut out stuff that doesn't specifically line up with God's word. And two, I'm going to cut out stuff that I don't love. If I don't love it, I'm not going to watch it. If it doesn't fill me up and, and help me be edified, then I'm not going to watch it. And so I've just been more intentional about the kind of TV that I'm consuming. And that all came from the conversation of, Lord, where do I run to for refuge, for safety and security that's not you? Again, I'm not putting that on you, but I'm telling you, this is how it works when we engage scripture. We expect God to show us things where we're off or, and, and move us in repentance, or you could take this the other way. If you're not feeling super convicted, you could say, okay, Lord, where are times in my life that you have been my refuge? And then you can praise him for it. So you could examine sin or you could offer praises based on the word refuge that you emphasized. Let's keep moving. Verse two, I said to the Lord, you are my master. Every good thing comes from you. Here we could emphasize the word master. What is a master? If you look it up, you would find someone that's in control, a controlling person or a controlling thing. The question that comes out of this is, is God my master? Is he the one who's controlling me or am I being controlled by someone else? As you think about the word master, you might bristle at it because the only masters that you've known in your life have been cruel ones. Perhaps you struggle with an addiction. You'll know that addictions are cruel masters. That's what's so helpful about this text. He says, the Lord, you are my master. And then he tells us what kind of master our God is. Every good thing I have comes from you. This is such a great joy building exercise. The practice of gratitude. If I were doing a quiet time, I would make a list of every good thing that I have in my life that comes from the Lord. I have a nice house. I have a nice car. Well, I have two cars that run, right? I have amazing friends. I have four healthy children. I have a beautiful wife that is far more gracious and loving to me than my treatment of her a lot of times deserves. That's a blessing. I have great coworkers. I have a full fridge. Folks, not only do I have enough food to eat, I have so much food in my fridge that I can pick what I'm wanting to eat. Do you know how rare that is? That's like a king level status that we experience in America that 80% of our world does not experience. What are we eating tonight? Well, look at the fridge. No, rice and beans. It's a blessing. And that's just the physical stuff. I have salvation. I know that when I die, I'm going to heaven because I know Jesus, period. I have a hope of heaven, the hope of eternity. I know that this is as close to hell as I will ever be. Praise Jesus for that. I know that I have forgiven forgiveness of my sins, the past ones 
and the ones that I'm going to commit are covered by Jesus. I know that I don't have to live with my head in shame because Jesus took my shame on the cross and said, I'm gonna give you honor instead of shame because he earned it for us. I make a list of the good things that come to God. If you struggle to submit or come to, to me from God, if you struggle to submit to God as your master, practice gratitude. He's a good master to come under. Folks, have you ever met a joy-filled grump? I haven't. They don't exist. Joy-filled, restful people are thankful people who gladly live with God as their master. We're going to have to move. We're not going to get through all these verses. Verse 3. The godly people in the land are my true heroes. I take pleasure in them. This one, I just simply ask the question, who are my heroes? Who do I read about? Who do I read up on? Who do I look up to? And I have a lot of godly folks in there, but I also felt a little conviction. I spent an inordinate amount of time reading about Aaron Rodgers last year, right? I'm a Packers fan. It's not sinful to read about sports. That's not what I'm saying. But in my personal quiet time with Lord, I feel like he said, you know, your, desi your desires are a little disordered here. The people that you're elevating and spending time reading about and following, not so godly. Maybe you ought to, maybe you ought to change a little of your reading and, and read about some people that are going to fill your cup up and remind you of my truth and a little less of maybe some of these other folks that the world would elevate. I don't know where Aaron Rodgers is at in his faith. I'm not saying that. This is just a personal conversation between me and the Lord. Who, who do I take pleasure in being around? Who are my heroes? Good questions to ask. Verse four, troubles multiply for those who chase after other gods. I will not take part in their sacrifices of blood or even speak the name of their gods. I mentioned earlier that sometimes when we're going through scripture, a great question to ask is, is there a promise that I can claim? Sometimes that's in the positive of what God will do. Sometimes it's in the negative, a consequence that is promised to happen if you do X, Y, and Z. Here we see a promise that we can claim. Troubles multiply for those who chase after other gods. Now I recognize that none of you have little Buddhas setting up on, on your shelves that you're you know, making sacrifices to, but that, that's where we can talk about what is a God. It's a master, a controlling thing in my life. That opens up the door a little bit more, doesn't it? What are the controlling things in my life? Is it the Lord God Almighty or is it something else? Is it my children? I'm controlled by my kids. My life revolves around them and them only. That's a problem. They're good things, but they're not God things. And that's how we make idols. We could talk about endlessly about the list of idols that we make. Our hearts are idol factories. We turn good things into God things, into controlling things, and that's the problem. So another question we could ask in this same vein is, what am I making sacrifices for in my life? How am I spending my time, my talent, and treasure? And is that more on God and his design and his things and his kingdom? Or is it on something else? Chances are we could heed the warning of this promise. When we go after good things and make them God things, what's the promise? Troubles multiply. Are your troubles multiplying in your life because you have disordered affections? And you're going after good things, thinking that they will give you the joy and rest that only Jesus can give you. It's a good question to ask. 
as the Lord prompts you and talks to you, confession and repentance. Confession and repentance. Verse 5 is a good one. We could talk about inheritance and what it means to have an inheritance. Um, it's a, a monetary uh, portion that's left behind to a children. Uh, I read another. Uh, I read it in another passage. Sometimes I like to read in different translations. So we have the NLT and the NET up there. The NET is the one that hit me the most when I read through this. Lord, you give me the stability and prosperity. You make my future secure. That's what an inheritance does. You give me stability and prosperity. You make my future secure. How much of our hurry in life is because we do not trust that God has an inheritance for us. We do not trust that he will make our lives stable, prosperous, and our futures secure. Lord Jesus, help us wrap our minds around this promise that you are the one that makes our future secure, that you provide stability and prosperity. Verse seven, verse seven says this. It says, I will bless the Lord who guides me even at night, my heart instructs me. Now, I don't have a question for you uh, necessarily from this one to ask of the text. I just want to let you in on, on my conversation with the Lord when I read this. I was incredibly encouraged by this verse, probably more than any other verse. I will bless the Lord who guides me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. I don't know about you, but I go through seasons of life where I get incredibly frustrated with God because I don't feel like he gives me that clear of guidance, right? Specifically, I have four, four, four kids whom I love, and they're all vastly different from one another. Generally speaking, I've spent time in the word enough to know that Ephesians 4 tells me I should not exasperate my children. I know that generally speaking. I know in Deuteronomy 6 that my call as a parent and a father is to teach my children the ways of Jesus, to write the word of God on my door frames and posts and talk about it when I get up and talk about when I, when I go down. I know in Hebrews 4 that the Lord disciplines his children because he loves them and he calls parents to discipline their children because he loves them. I know generally what I'm supposed to do as a parent, but good grief, if my kids cannot invent situations that are really difficult for me to figure out how to parent them through, right? I cry out to God, God, would you guide me? Would you help me specifically? I don't just want a chapter and a verse. I want you to speak into this situation and tell me what in the world I'm supposed to do as a dad here. I'll tell you what, I'm frustrated a lot because he doesn't write it across the sky. I've never heard an audible voice from God, right? Am I alone in the frustration in that? I don't think I am. I read this verse and that still small voice of God whispered into my heart, and I realized that in that frustration, it's unwarranted. Because not only will God guide me, he desires to. He desires to. And this verse tells me how I can expect to hear from him. Even at night, my heart instructs me. Friends, do you know how God speaks to us? And this is where knowing your scriptures is incredibly helpful. There's a story in the Old Testament about a man named Elijah who is ticked at God because his life is throwing him curveballs and he wants clear direction from the Lord. And he goes out and has a pity party for himself and God meets him there and eventually says, I just want to hear from you. I want you to speak to me. And in that story, a whirlwind goes by 
But we're told in the text that God is not in the whirlwind. He doesn't write the answers we're looking for up in the sky. After the whirlwind comes a fire, an intense fire. It blazes past the entrance of the cave. But the Lord wasn't in the fire. Shortly after the fire came a still, small, gentle breeze, a whisper. God's voice was in the whisper. Friends, God speaks to us through a heart that is shaped and molded by meditating on his word regularly. If you want to hear from your father, open up the book, the love letter that he has written to you, and hold on to the promise of Hebrews that says this book is not dead. It is living and active, and it will cut you to the bone in the best way. It will hold up a mirror before you, not before your spouse, not before your coworker, before you and say, this is what you are like, and this is what I am your God is like. Come and sit with me. Come and hear from me. Let me change you. Let me give you joy, fullness of joy, peace, rest, and pleasures forevermore. There's a couple more verses we could walk through, but you get the idea. Church, we have been sold a bill of goods. We have been sold a bag of goods. You have been lied to and told that what you need is an escape to experience rest. It ain't true. It is not true. You do not need an escape from your present reality. What you need, what I need, is to engage with the God who is ever-present by strapping on the yoke of meditating on his word and talking to him through prayer. As you practice those two spiritual disciplines, meditating on God's word and talking with him, I guarantee you, God will draw you into his presence. You will begin to experience more joy, fullness of joy, rest, and pleasures in his presence that far exceed what any scape this world has to offer. May God grant us growth in the awareness of his presence as we practice reading our Bibles for ourselves and praying regularly. Let's ask him for help in this, shall we? Father, thank you. Thank you for the love that you have for us. Thank you for the simplicity of this Lord. Lord, as we, as we go through a message like this, I'm aware that we have an enemy from without, Satan and his demons, and we also have an enemy within, our flesh. I'm, I'm aware, Father, that I imagine there are several folks in here thinking, I've tried this and it doesn't work. When I open my Bible, I can't understand a thing that I read. Lord Jesus, if they're being blocked in their comprehension from a demonic thing, I pray against that in Jesus' name. Give them freedom. And Father, I pray that, that we all would embrace the truth of John 16. Lord, you said that it's better for you to leave us and send your spirit than if you stayed here. You said that if you left us, you would not leave us as orphans and that the spirit that you send to take up residence within us would not only illuminate your word to our hearts, but that would speak to us specifically, would draw us into your presence, would remind us of the things that you have said. I pray, Lord, that each and every single person in here would be encouraged, would be drawn in 
to meditate on your word. I pray, Father, that as we take up this practice more and more, empowered by your spirit, that you would encourage us, that your word would leap off the page, that you would speak to us specifically, tenderly, lovingly, that we might grow in the fullness of your joy and experience pleasures forevermore. You said it, Lord. Make it true in our lives. For your glory and our joy, we pray. Amen.